I want to ask you, um, how do you know when you're in the presence of God? Uh, I kind of ask that question because I, well, I feel like oftentimes when we talk about the presence of God, we, we often relate it to a feeling. So, um, so maybe the thing that makes you know that you're in the presence of God, right, is, is like a worship song that just in particular like really hits you in the feels, right? It like it has the right words and it has the, the right sounds and you put all of that together and you hear it and you're like, oh yes, that I feel like I'm in God's presence, right? This is how I know I'm in God's presence. Maybe uh, for you, it's a place, that you go to, right? So I grew up going to a Christian camp, and the crazy thing is uh, a lot of the kids who went to the camp every year, you know, they're like, oh, I just pulled onto the ground, the campgrounds, and I knew God was here, right? I felt God's presence. Because, and why do they say that? Well, probably because they ha- had some amazing experience several years ago, right? And they remember that experience. And so every time they come to this physical place, the memories of this experience make them go, oh, yes, I am in God's presence, right? It's their feeling, their feeling that they get when they go to a place. Maybe, maybe you have like a prayer closet, or something that you pray in. And so like you get out of just the general space of your house, you go into this space, this is your space to kind of connect with God and you go, oh yeah, God is present in that space. I feel God's presence in that space. Uh, Maybe it's an aesthetic for you. Maybe it's certain colors that kind of generate feelings for you or maybe it's an atmosphere. You know what's crazy? I have heard people evaluate churches kind of uh, based on a feeling or an experience that they get when they walk into that place. And, and so they might say even something like, if there, were, if there weren't really any people, you know, raising their hands or being emotive with their bodies, they might walk into that place and say, God's presence must not be there because those people really just aren't into it, right? So the temptation is that we might be inclined to define God's presence by a feeling or an experience. Now, hear me. Uh, God's presence can work through feelings and experiences. That is absolutely true. However, if that is the sole way that we define God's presence, then the problem is we are becoming the standard by which we evaluate God, and that's never a good situation, right? You don't want to be the one standing here and evaluating God. God must not be here because I don't feel like God's here. You know what? Your emotions, your feelings are more fallen than God is, so I would trust God as opposed to your feelings. So that's something we need to be careful of. Now, why does this matter? Because the God of the Bible is a God of withness. The God of the Bible is a God of withness. He is unique. So, so most other religions have gods that are far off, gods that you never see, or they do have gods that you can see. They build statues to them, but you kind of have to go to where those statues are, right? So, and, and in some uh, circumstances and polytheism and that kind of thing, if a God comes to be with people, it's usually some kind of lesser God, a demigod that would come to be with people. Most of the gods stay far away. So the God of the Bible, in that he would seek to be with people, is really unique. 
See, actually, the Bible, it tells a story of a God who comes to be with people. And this is kind of unique and kind of conceptually confounding about Christianity because there are two things that are simultaneously true. We worship a God who is big and completely other and holy and righteous, like he is separate from us. He is so much bigger and more powerful and more holy and more pure than we could even imagine. And yet, at the same time, something is true. He would choose to come to be with us. So, so those two things combined are really significant. So here's my prayed for goal this morning. This is what I have been praying for throughout the week. And here is uh, even my hope right now. My prayer this morning is that no matter who you are, I want you to love and long for God's presence. Regardless of who you are, this morning as we work our way through this passage, I want you to love and long for God's presence. Now, what I mean, uh, what I don't mean, sorry, is I, I don't want you to search for a feeling. I don't want you to try to manufacture an experience. I simply want you to come to a place where you would love and long for God's presence. None of what I say this morning will matter if we do not love and long for God's presence. So, uh, so why? why? Why does that matter so much? Well, here's a simple truth. God's presence provides real meaning and significance. God's presence provides real meaning and significance. This is our main idea, our main thought. We are going to dig deeper and deeper and deeper into this. But I want us to love and long for God's presence this morning. So towards that end, I would invite you all to pray with me as we prepare our hearts to receive God's word. Father, we have hearts that love and long for many things. And oftentimes those things that we love and long for have nothing to do with you. So Lord, there's a work this morning that I cannot do through my words, that the people in this room cannot do through somehow manipulating themselves. There's something this morning that only you can do by your spirit. And so we are reliant on you to do it this morning. Father, you need to change our desires. You need to change our hearts. We cannot do this without you. So I invite you this morning for each person in this room to change our hearts, that we would become people who love and long for your presence. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this moment now. We give ourselves to you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in the book of Exodus, Exodus 33. So just kind of catch you up a little bit. Uh, after Moses gets the law, he, gets, he goes up to the mountain, he goes up to Mount Sinai, and he's meeting with God, and God gives him the law, and he brings it down to the people. And, and so uh, the people say, okay, whatever God says, we'll do it. 
we're going to do whatever he tells us. And so then Moses, he climbs back up onto the mountain and says, I've got to go get some more instructions. So he's up there and uh, lo and behold, he comes down 40 days later. And uh, when he comes back, they are worshiping a golden calf, which is explicitly what God told them not to do. So, uh, so here we go. They are committing idolatry, right? And we've talked through this the last couple of weeks. So let's just briefly cover what an idol is, right? Because we can commit idolatry even though we don't build statues and bow down and worship them. So here's what an idol is. An idol is anything to which you give love, trust, and obedience before God. That is an idol. Anything to which you give love, trust, and obedience before God. Let me say that another way. An idol is anything you seek for ultimate meaning and significance. Anything that you seek for ultimate meaning and significance. And here's the problem. Idols are actually fooling us, right? They're fooling us into giving ourselves to them because they're making us think they give us something. They can give us meaning and significance. But here's the reality. No idol, no thing that we would chase after in this world can actually sustain all of our meaning and significance, right? It will always fall short. Anytime we seek it for that purpose, it will fall short. So Israel has done, we see them at the foot of the mountain, and that's kind of where we're at in the story, what God said not to do, and God became angry because God had shown Israel consistent care. He had saved them out of the land of Egypt. He had uh, parted the Red Sea. He had saved them from oppression. He had crushed their enemies, right? He fought for them all the way. And then Israel kind of took the love that he showed for them and threw it in his face. And so God punished the people, and we looked at that last week. Uh, Some of the people were killed. Everyone suffered from some kind of plague, right? This is what happened. So the narrative is going to pick up from this point, and and we we are going, kind of moving forward now from Israel's sin, and what we're going to see in light of that are three truths about God's presence. So Exodus 33, 1 through 3. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here. And then in verse 3, it says, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. So God had given Israel a promise. They were going to go to a land. He was going to make them a great nation. They were going to go and live in this land. They were going to be prosperous. Other nations were going to look at this nation and go, wow, their God must be really, really great, right? He must do amazing things. This was God's plan. And so God is saying, hey, we're still moving forward with that plan. God had saved them from Egypt, and even though they had sinned, he is keeping his promise, but there is now a relational rift between God's people and himself because they have done the explicit thing that he told them not to do, even though he has saved them. So what's interesting, if you look back in Exodus 32, verse 7, if you have your Bibles, you're able to look there. But, but what's really interesting is that uh, throughout the story of Exodus, God is saying, I'm saving my people. I'm coming for my people. I'm doing something for my people. In Exodus 32, 7, God says to Moses, look what your people have done. Right? This is kind of like parents when they don't want to own what their kids are doing. They said, hey, look at what your kid is doing. Right? So God looks at Moses and says, Moses, look at what your people have done. Your people have corrupted themselves. So it says further on in Exodus 33, verse 3, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So God says, you know what? 
you're still going to go to the land. And I'm even going to go to the land, but here's the deal. I cannot go with you. Like, I cannot be among you. I cannot be with this people. So, so God's plan, for what it's worth, he's already detailed it to Moses in kind of verse, or chapters 25 through 30. Uh, he, he's talked about the plan for the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was going to be this kind of structure, this place where God could stay. And in the tabernacle is, uh, you know, you have, okay, good. So when we speak about presence here, and, and particularly in this passage, uh, while it's true that God is everywhere present, he also relates to us as a God who resides in specific places, right? Like that's one of the ways he makes himself known to us. So, so there's kind of his general uh, presence everywhere, but then he has a very specific presence in particular places, his special presence. So, uh, so God kind of speaks of his nature like this. He is a God who comes to be with people. And in fact, this is one of the most consistent reminders of Scripture. When God is coming to people, he's saying, hey, fear not, for I am with you. That's exactly right. Fear not, for I am with you. It's his reminder again and again and again. He is a God who takes up residence in particular places. And so God says to Moses, Here's the problem. Even when they haven't sinned, like this whole tabernacle thing, these structures and these procedures and processes, even when they haven't sinned, we still have to kind of keep me separate from them. There have to kind of be some barriers that would separate us, that would divide us. There have to be some processes that they would follow to get into my presence. But now that they have sinned, Moses... We're not even going to do that thing where I was going to go in their midst and kind of be separated from them. We're going to do a thing now where I'm not even with them, right? Like they're going to go and I'm not going to go with them, Moses. So, so he was, God's kind of telling Moses, Moses, I'm inclined to change my plan right now. Because if I go with them, these people are so stubborn. That's this, the word stiff-necked means they're not going to change. They're going to keep pursuing their, their own way. They're going to keep thinking that they know what's best, better than I do. Uh, they're going to be ungrateful. They're lacking in humility. They're always complaining. Uh, they're stuck in their sinful ways, and they simply do not care. Moses, if I go with them, they will die. So I'm not going to go with them. So then, interestingly enough, skip down to verses 7 through 11 real quick. These verses kind of are given as an aside, and they take place after Sinai. And this is before the tabernacle is built. Uh, they help us kind of understand what would have happened if God did not go among them. So verses thir uh, Exodus 33, verse 7 says this. It says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. So this is a period of time before they leave Sinai. They're sitting there. And Moses, God, God has told Moses, I'm not going to go with them. So God is all the way outside the camp, far off from the people. And every day that Moses goes to talk to God, he has to leave and go far away. Because if God is among the people, bad things will happen. And so this is what God said. God says, you know what, because I am dealing with, I'm already dealing with broken and sinful people. And so, you know what? I need barriers. I need boundaries. There need to be processes and procedures. So we're going to have the tabernacle, right? And that's going to be the way I'm going to kind of move among you. So that's already true. 
But then because these people kind of committed spiritual adultery by worshiping another god, Moses, uh, that, that promise that I gave you, you you're still going to go for it, but I'm going to stay back. And actually, verses 7 through 11 show us this period of time where uh, things would have looked like God would have been distant from his people. So all of this shows us something significant about God's presence that we cannot afford to miss. This is our first truth this morning. God's presence will not coexist with sin. It cannot happen. Like there is no space for God and sin to be located together in the same physical location, right? This is how he's describing it to us. He has no part of this thing. The two things can't be residing together. So let's keep reading into verse 4. Exodus 33, 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. So, so grasp this. Even though Israel had sinned, uh, even though they kind of willingly jumped into this sin, they still grasped the importance of God's presence. Like part of their reason for sinning was because they, they actually kind of wanted some presence with them, right? Moses was up there. God was up there. We need to build a God so we know that somebody's with us. That's what they told themselves. But um, they recognize the importance of God's presence. They recognize how important it is that God would actually go with them as they walk through the wilderness. They watched God give them light in the middle of the plague of darkness in Egypt. That was his presence, right? They watched God make a way through the sea when there was no other way. That was God's presence. They had a visible pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night, and that was God's presence going with them through the wilderness. They watched God daily lead them through the desert when they would have had no direction. That was God's presence. They could see and be protected by the fire at night. That was God's presence. This was like this, all of this together was the thing that other nations would have seen and heard about and gone, we need to leave those people alone. That was God's presence. And you know what? They, they might have chased after this idol. They might have built this idol for some sort of temporary relief or pleasure, but they knew that without God's presence, they were nothing. Like if God did not go with them, they would die. They would be ruined. So verse 5 says this. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, Remind them, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. So verse 6, Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb, Onwards. So what are these ornaments? These are the pieces of gold that, uh, that before the Israelites made the calf, these ornaments, these pieces that they took off were the pieces that they threw in together to be burned and kind of liquefied down so that they could turn it into the golden calf, right? So every time that an Israelite would have seen one of these ornaments still on them, whether it's a bracelet on the hand or earrings on the ears or necklaces, whether they would, anytime they would have seen these things, they would have been a reminder of the time that they built a false god. And so God says to take them off. So, so many of these pieces were left over, and, 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 and the presence of these 
ornaments, they would point them to the idol. And so it's, it's interesting as they continued, uh, as the judgment against Israel continued, he didn't just, uh, you know, kill some people. He didn't just send a plague, but now he's going to make sure that they put away everything that pointed them to their idolatry. So here's, here's the interesting thing. Like they, they remove even the reminder of their rebellion from their bodies without a second thought. Like they don't argue with God about this. They just do it because they know that being with God is better than the inanimate object that they were chasing after. Right? There's, there's something really significant to notice here. They followed, uh, they knew that the golden calf was kind of nothing more than a temptation for them, but they chose to follow after it anyway. Like they sought meaning and significance and power in something that would ultimately come up short. Right? So, so this is what happens. When we give things that are not God, God's place in our lives, those things come up short. So, so maybe it's ultimate meaning, maybe that's what you're looking for, ultimate meaning in uh, pleasure and experience. So uh, people who often find that, they might chase after drugs or alcohol, but you know what happens when you chase after drugs and alcohol? Those things lead you to a place where you discover a life of emptiness and meaninglessness. Right? Maybe you would seek to find ultimate meaning and success and achievement. Well, what happens with when the market shifts or, or your job is given to somebody else? What happens when you run out of positions to step up into or run out of rewards to receive? Maybe you would find ultimate meaning in the approval of others. Well, what happens when you have to make a decision that's going to make everyone mad no matter what side they're on? What happens when you lose track of your own personality and your own desires because you were too busy becoming what other people wanted you to be? Maybe you would find ultimate meaning in your closest relationships. Well, what happens when people move away? What happens when your closest people don't call you as often as you want to talk to them? What happens when you feel like you're more invested in the relationship than the other person is? What happens when those people let you down? See, Israel, they were seeking some kind of meaning in this golden calf. But here's the crazy thing. They had already experienced the powerful significance and meaning of knowing that God was going with them. And he said to them, you are my treasured possession. Like I'm going with you and I'm identifying you. I'm giving you significance. You are my people. You see, our creator longs to be present with us and tell us the very same thing. He longs to give us meaning and significance that is not contingent on other people, not contingent on our circumstances, not contingent on our feelings. Uh, He longs to be with us, that he might show us the meaning and significance we have. But, But often, like when we keep chasing after these other things for ultimate significance, we miss out on what he offers. So when Israel gets rid of these ornaments off of their body that they used to build the calf, it, it's an action that affirms a truth for them. And here's our second truth this morning. Nothing 
else gives meaning like God's presence. Nothing else in the whole world, nothing that you could chase after, nothing that you could commit your life to gives meaning like God's presence. Okay, so as the narrative continues, we're going to discover one final truth. They are uh, the people. They're camped at Sinai, and uh, this is now after Moses has gone up to the mountain. He's come down. They're probably several days after this time when they got rid of the ornaments. And and Moses is every day going out to meet with the Lord, going out far away. And, and the Bible says that Moses and the Lord, they talk together face to face like they were friends. Right? And so Moses knows that they're going to have to depart soon and go for the promised land. So he goes out to the tent for this conversation with God. And, uh, and so Moses had some time to think about this. So he goes and he approaches God, Exodus thirty-three, twelve. it says this. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. So, so Moses is saying, hey, Lord, okay, listen up. Like, I know that you, like, we're on good terms, right? I know that we have a, a solid relationship. I also know that you're telling me to go. Here's a problem, though. you got to know we can't go by ourselves. Like, it's just not going to work. So verse 13, it says, Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight. So he's saying, you keep telling me uh, I have found favor in your sight. You keep telling me this. So, so, Lord, if it's actually true, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Right? So remember that whole thing where, where God tells Moses, Moses, this is your people now. Your people have corrupted themselves. Well, now Moses, in his prayer, this kind of face-to-face friendship with God, he says to God, remember, this is your people. Right? This, this, I need you to show me favor. I need you to show them favor. Remember when God, like, uh, they are your people too. So this is kind of what he's saying. He's saying, I need your presence with me because they are your people. He kind of stops here, right? This is his first request. And he's kind of trying to get what he can. And so, so God replies in verse 14. And he said, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. So he's not talking about all of the people. He's talking right now about Moses. Why is he talking about Moses? Because Moses has said, if I have found favor in your sight, I need somebody who will go with me. And so God says, okay, okay, Moses, I see where you're coming from. I will go with you. Now, Moses is kind of like, okay, well, can we try something else? So, so when God hears and answers this prayer, kind of Moses goes another step deeper, and he kind of verbally processes this. So he says, uh, verse 15, and he said to him, okay, so uh, if your presence will not go with me, don't bring us up from here, right? This is a reminder. Like, it's pointless for us to leave this place if you're not going to go with us. So let's not just talk about me right now, though, God. Let's talk about us. Verse 16, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people. 
Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, different from any other people on the face of the earth? He says, God, it's not just me that has found favor, but this people. You've called this people out. You've given promises to this people. So God, go go with me, but, but also your desire, remember your desire, you want to make your name great. And the only way you're going to do that is by setting this people apart. And the only way this people can be set apart is by you giving them an identity, by you giving you, them your presence. So God, you know this people, like you know that we can't do this on our own. If this nation is going to be great, it's only going to be because of you. So Moses is recognizing something of great importance here. Like this is, this is like my daughter when she is playing over in a different room and she is there for like two minutes, but then she has to come out and she has to say, Dada, come with me, right? Because she's over there playing, but this experience to her isn't really all that meaningful if I'm not there with her. Right, So she comes out and gets me to go in with her and play with her because that moment will become more meaningful, more significant to her. Or this is like uh, maybe the president gives me orders to go to a particular place. But, but instead of just like sending me off to go to that place, he goes with me wherever I go on the way there. So that wherever I go, I kind of have a motorcade with me and he's kind of following me everywhere as I go to the place that he has told me to go. Suddenly, every interaction and action that I take becomes very significant because everybody's observing the things that I'm doing. And I know every moment, every step, every action has meaning. So Moses knows that the only thing that will make us great, the only thing that's going to sustain us, the only thing that will set us apart is your presence. So essentially, Moses goes a step further in his prayer, and he says, we need your presence with us because we are your people. He doesn't just say, I need your presence with me because they are your people. Now he says, we need your presence with us because we are your people. And here's the crazy thing. Moses has this favor with God and God listens to Moses and he hears his prayer. And so verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, the very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. So why would God do this so quickly? I want to pause at a reason. Uh, Moses is righteous. James 5.16 says, the prayer of a righteous person availeth much. As you watch, as you walk closer to God, you begin to understand his heart. And people understand, who understand God's heart know how to pray the things that God wants. And apparently in this moment, Moses prayed something that God wanted. Because you know what's close to God's heart? Carrying out the promise he made to Abraham. You know what's close to God's heart? Showing other nations that he keeps his word. So when Moses prays and God answers, the truth becomes clear. And here's our third truth this morning. God's presence provides real meaning and significance. Okay, so I need to state something obvious. God's presence operates differently for us than it did for Israel. Like we don't have, first of all, a pillar of cloud and fire, right? Like there's nothing coming down through the ceiling right now. That's not something that we see. But more significantly, here's a way that we operate different from Israel. 
every Jesus follower has full access to God's presence. Every Jesus, like there is nothing obstructing you right now from being close to your father. There's not one thing, like there is no tabernacle, there's no processes or procedures for you to work through, there is no God like keeping his distance from you no matter what you've done, there is no God like sitting there waiting to, for you to get your act together, for you to figure things out, like God's presence is fully available to you right this moment. Why? Well, because every one of your sins, past present, and future has been paid for on the cross of Jesus. So Jesus absorbs your sin from the moment you sin, absorbs your sin and gives you his righteousness so that you can walk to God and be like a person who is a friend with God relating to him face to face in his presence. You can actually now walk boldly into his presence and know that you don't have to be afraid of him, but that you are actually welcomed and favored and beloved. You are his child and you are welcomed into his presence. Like God has no part with sin. And so Jesus bore our sins so that we could have a place at God's side. And not only that, but here's something kind of crazy. His presence goes with you wherever you go. Right? So, um, like you carry the most meaningful and significant and empowering thing in the whole universe with you wherever you go. You have the presence of the living creator of the universe with you wherever you go. So like we talk about our roles in developing people and influencing people and trying to pour into people. And uh, so, so just can you imagine for a second, like if you simply became more aware that like when you're in that conversation at the grocery store, God is with you, like as close as he could possibly be to you in that moment. Or when you walk into your workplace, God is with you as close as he could possibly be to you. Or when you sit in the coffee shop, he is there waiting for you to become aware of his presence. Or when you come home and seek to love and minister your family, his empowering presence is there with you in that moment. Or when, you, uh, when you're in the middle of a crisis response, there in that moment, fully accessible to you is God's presence. Or when you're building a relationship with your neighbor, there fully accessible to you in your house, in your relations to your neighbor. It, your, your God is there fully accessible to you. His presence is available. Like you don't just have access to his presence, but you are able to carry that presence with you wherever you go, and he empowers you to do the things that you do. Right. So imagine if you actually believed that this was true, because it is true. Right, but, but imagine if it, it were not just like really true, but you are aware of the truth of this reality. Okay, so so what? So what? I want to talk to three different people for our so what's this morning. For the first person, I want to talk to the person who would say, you know what, Pastor, you're talking a lot about the presence of God and the idea of the presence of God. I want to talk to the person who would say, I have never experienced the presence of God.
right? Because you need to know that the welcome and love of God is available to you right now. In Jesus. Right? Like you trust Jesus. You decide to follow Jesus. You turn away from following your own path for your life and start to follow Jesus. And you know what? Instantaneously, Jesus gives you access to God in heaven. Right? Like your promise from that point forward is that the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you and then God goes with you wherever you go. The creator of the universe becomes fully accessible to you. So if you long to be with God and long to be where he is and long to have meaning and significance for your life, decide today to trust in Jesus Christ. I want to talk to a second person. A person who would say, you know what, I have, I've tasted God's presence, but I have become cold and indifferent. I just tell you a pattern that uh, is displayed throughout scripture. Sin separates us from God. Right? That is just a pattern that is displayed throughout scripture. But then there's a reality. That even if you've, if you've trusted in Jesus, you actually now have full access to the presence of God. So what's happening when you sin? Well, what you're doing is you are numbing yourself to the reality of God's presence. You are numbing your awareness to the reality of God's presence. And you know what's crazy? As you actively do that and actively walk deeper and deeper into sin, he's still standing there open, uh, kind of opening arms and offering you full access. Right? It's free by the mercy of Jesus. No matter how far you've walked, the, 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 the step to come back is simply one step. But as long as you continue to love your sin and find meaning and significance in something besides him, then you will continue telling the God who extends welcome to you that you don't really care about enjoying and appreciating his presence. So I want to tell you, if you're this person who has become cold and indifferent to God's presence, that whatever you're holding on to, repent. Like, let that thing go and become aware of the welcome that your creator is extending to you right now. Third person. I'm going to talk to a person who says, by the way, most of us would probably fall into this category. Talk to the person who says, I need a deeper experience of God's presence. And I've been in a conversation with a friend recently, and in, in uh, several conversations actually, and, and in the midst of those conversations, there's a quote that keeps coming up. The essence of discipleship is being in God's presence with awareness and expectancy. Right, like the core of discipleship. If you could just boil it down to what it means to walk day by day, it's to simply be in God's presence with awareness and expectancy. Right, like this is not an issue of access. This is an issue of our awareness. So if you want a deeper experience of God's presence, then you need to do two things. Number one, you need to push out distraction. Because distraction is the thing that fills up the space that you would use to do the second thing, which is pursue spiritual disciplines. Right? Read your Bible. If you want a deeper awareness of God's presence, like read scripture. Let scripture fill your soul. 
Don't be satisfied with a verse a day. Go deep. Read, like, goodness, read a whole book in one sitting. Like, just get an idea of the bigger picture of what God is doing in the story of that book. Let, let the character of God wash over you. Let like, who your father is fill your soul and remind you constantly. Right? You want a deeper experience with God, like set aside time to pray. Like, and not just pray like, oh gosh, God, I, like, uh, I guess I need to pray now, so I'm going to try to think of all the things that I need to pray for, and I'm going to worry about that. And it's like, no, just be honest with God. Like, I have a hard time. I get really easily distracted, and so this is challenging for me. Like, be honest about where your heart is in the moment and say, gosh, I don't want to enjoy this or do this, but I'm trying, and so, Lord, I need your help as I'm trying to relate to you, right? Know that his mercy and grace is constantly extended to you. Like, turn the TV off. Like, here's a spiritual discipline. Give money to those in need. Right? You use your money for yourself, set your money, like go to somebody who has a specific need and, and give them money. Right? Let go of something to help somebody else. Serve your neighbor. Serve in your church. Like pray for the persecuted church. Miss Debbie's up here all the time talking about that. You want to like, do a spiritual discipline? Look at like, our brothers and sisters in need around the world who are facing the sword and the gun and fire and famine because they're worshiping Jesus. Right, pray for them. Right, confess your sins to one another. You, you want to experience God's presence more? Like, be on, like, just be transparent about who you are and receive mercy from your brother or sister and receive mercy from your Lord. Like, go to Sunday worship. Spend time in silence and solitude with God. Like, God, like, fast, maybe. Maybe you could, like, Choose to set aside food for a day so that you could go deeper with the Lord. Build relationships with other people. Intentionally seek to be an extension of God's presence in your spheres of influence. Like all of these things, these are disciplines. These are things that require a plan and require some intention and require some steps. But if you want a deeper experience of God's presence, you need to start with doing something. Right? And here's the crazy thing. No matter where you've been, up to this point, he's fully accessible right now. So all of those practices, if done intentionally, can grow us in our awareness of God's presence. And all of that helps to ground us in what is truly meaningful and significant about our lives, that the living creator of the universe has chosen to be with us. Would you please, please pray with me? God, I thank you for what it is that you have accomplished for us in Jesus, that we need not worry about procedure or process, or we, we need not worry about the person that we think we need to become, we need not worry about the things even that we have done in the past. Lord, but you give us full access now, regardless of where we've been. Your mercy is rich. Lord, sometimes we see 
not the value of your presence. My prayer this morning and my continued prayer for us as we leave this place is that you would help us to love and long for your presence because it is only that greater love, that love that exceeds love for all other things that would drive us to actually take the steps that we need to take. So God, I ask that you would change our loves. Let us love your presence more than anything else. And let us know that it is fully accessible right now. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have accomplished for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.